0: Welcome to Live with Greg,
1: or Live with Greg, depending on the semantics. Are we rolling? Are we rolling, Jimmy? Both? Yeah. All right, and Mark. (laughs) (laughs) That's who we're with. Our third episode of Live with Greg together. Yeah. And I'm here with my co-host and co-producer of Moped Outlaws... Mark Went, dear brother, friend who's let me into the intimacy of his life and I've allowed probably a little bit more than others <laughs> than you to be in mine. I think I hold back a lot, but this isn't about me, this is about you.
0: Yeah, and I'm here with my, my good friend Greg, who I've known almost longer than most of my other friends and who I've been friends with for decades. Yeah. So, and my co-host and producer, um, and, um, all around confidant.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why one thing that kind of, uh, sparked me about doing this episode with you is now we've been doing moped outlaws. We're almost finished with our third season.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was wondering, um, what irks you about working with Greg <laughs>
0: Hmm. What irks me? Yeah, not a lot. Um, Sort of hard to think of. Well, I guess the best way to answer that is to say what kind of used to irk me, but I've grown, um, you know, desensitized to and... (laughs) (laughs) I've
1: got this hard
0: shell. No, 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 no. What's really going on is there's, there's aspects where I feel your pain come through. And because of my, um, own biography and my tendency towards empathy and maybe over, um, like codependency things, I feel what others feel in my field around me. And often that's a, a trigger for me to try to soothe, protect, shift fix control and so when there's pieces that you tap into that i see as like um, cultivation of the negative or the dark impulses in the world the death forces or the decay forces that triggers that that sense of of um intensity for me and wanting to like not experience that and wanting to soothe. And so sometimes, you know, um, that irks me because I don't want to experience that. I want to control you. I want to have you not, but over time I've learned that, well, if I just lean in a little, I might learn something. I might find something out about, um, you or about the thing that I'm perceiving or what's happening in the moment and gain more insight, gain more wisdom. And so what I try to do is just, um, you know, clench my jaw, hold my breath and ignore you. No. <laughs> How's that working out? <laughs> I need to go to the dentist. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Have a um, bike guard. Yeah. 24 7. Oh, uh, I've seen Greg. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not real. That's just me joking around. I like it. But, you know. Honestly, the thing that happens is that I get the mo- I mostly I worry about you. I worry about you falling down some dark hole when I'm not around to be um, shine a light in the hole to remind you that I'm here and that love is real. Right? You
1: know D U M B love.
0: <laughs> what? D U M B love? love. That's a reference I'm. That's kind of going over oh, my okay. head. It's but a song I,
1: I, I made up long time.
0: Oh yeah 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 yeah. Dumb dumb. Yeah, got it.
1: Ah. love is real, huh?
0: Yeah. So, not much irks me. I find it funny and entertaining, and like. There's this fascination you have sometimes with um, things like The Exorcist or telling your story over again about how you, you made a deal with the devil. And, how, and there's this part of you, I think, that um, self-sabotages by fixating on that resonant frequency. And that the, the vision I have of you that lives in my heart is that you're radiant and powerful and uh, a force for immense generosity and good and productivity in the world. And what we see in reality is that you are like, you're producing massive stuff. You're producing this show. You're producing our show. You're producing other shows, producing work for your clients, right? You're producing energy to be a father in your life. And so the, Evidence, if the observable evidence suggests that you are moving in a very positive way in your life. And I you know that sometimes from a mood standpoint, that's not always the case.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I want, I don't want this to be about me, but yeah, you've hit on something where I think sort of my overall frequency is doom and gloom.
0: Yeah. And, uh, we talked a lot about it at one point. Yeah. And um, there's something in it for you. It's a place to hide. And I think it's a place for you to hide from your greatest potential good, the true capacity that you have for good.
1: Okay, one of the things you brought up was how feeling these feelings of doom, darkness, shadow, they're uncomfortable. And a very human... Reaction to that feeling is for it to go away in some manner, mm-hmm. which brings up addictive elements, things that do change our chemistry that we could get addicted to.
0: I'm addicted to breathing. Well, I recommend you look into that because there's a
1: program for that. There's 12 steps. You can, you know, first is to recognize that you're powerless to not breathe. <laughs> Make amends to the people that you breathed into onto um, um, that day. You didn't brush your teeth. Um, all right, so I don't know if you heard about what is currently resonating in our school district here in South Marin in a racist video that went through one of the high schools.
0: You said something about it a couple of weeks back, but because I don't have children, it's not, not, I'm not aware of it at at a high level. So do you want to remind me?
1: Well, so this video was made by some high school students that's very racist and hurtful. And it was circulated through social media.
0: By them or by yeah, someone else.
1: By them, and okay. then I think it like social media can catch fire, and then it's passed on and on and on. But it was very, it was very widely
0: seen. Have we and, hung them on the cross of their white privilege yet? Well,
1: so here's the thing: is I think for me, there's an element of I want to be uncomfortable now, and I want to meet with people in a. And I want to create change to our school district and system so that we no longer have incidents of reaction to something that's nefarious. Instead, we have systems of healing where it won't be experienced, hopefully, in the future. And I think Part of like what you just touched upon, and I think what you and I have learned a lot about with working with Bridge and other people of her kindness that shares knowledge of being
0: anti-racist and black healing, and and healing it, ourselves. To be yeah,
1: black. yeah. Not, okay, um, is to be uncomfortable, like to. I forgot my point to a degree, but here's the thing. like I listen to people speaking to the board meeting for like 40 minutes. They each get three minutes apiece. So that's a lot of people speaking. And one woman that really stays with me is uh, this woman who was going to high school at TAM in the 60s. And here we are 2023, the exact same things going on. She's like, "What? what are you doing? And I think Part of our white privilege is we react to something, kind of like the whole Black Lives Matter you know, marches that happened during the COVID thing. And then, oh, we did that. Like we check a box and move on instead of staying in the discomfort, staying in the hardness, staying in the pain of the reality and really healing the elements that are creating that reality. Yeah, I might be fooling myself, but a part of what I believe, my reasoning is for being in shadow and gloom, is what is the creation of this, so that it can really be healed. It's the creation of this?
0: So it can really be healed. Yeah.
1: So a lot of the work you've been doing recently is work with men's groups, and I've seen you really dive into that as someone who has moved into a place of leadership amongst these men.
0: Yeah. I want to say that there's a through line here about you and your personal focus on your personal success and the way that sometimes you hide in the cultivation of the giddiness and glee and sort of (laughs) you get from the dark forces and sort of playing with them. And that is different than what you described as this desire to interact with a social institution like your school board to create some anti-racism work, right? There's a couple, there's sort of mixed things there. So I want to go to that and then talk about masculine leadership. Okay stay with you. Sure. All right. So the piece about you is we find lots of ways to be avoidant of our own power. And the reasoning usually comes down to some kind of trauma about our having stepped into a place of expression and then being reprimanded or could, you know, sort of, and we have wounding around that. So on one level, it's easier for your psyche, your subconscious to joyfully be bad because it takes the sting out of being optimistic and hopeful and trying to do something and failing and being and then being labeled as bad right because you're like choosing it instead of it being you know foisted upon you and so you're you get to play small in that game right you get to be connected to the darkness and it's stopping me and there's this and there's that and I can't afford to actually create wealth and prosperity and, and success for myself because there's so many other dark things that I need to pay attention to. Now, the reason that game works so well for you is because that there are, and you brought one up, which is I need to stay in the pain of the anti-racism work and that we've both been schooled that that's an important aspect of, of, you know, taking our white privilege and applying some reparations to the world through not losing attention and not bypassing and not taking our quote, eye off the ball, so to speak. And so I acknowledge that, right. And there's a difference between the sort of the, the former one where you're using this like kind of gleeful, playful, uh, dance with the dark as a way to avoid actually being powerfully a force for good by creating something beyond just the result in your sphere of influence, like making money through your business, that sort of thing. But actually like, building something that's got a massive energy behind it and by energy I mean wealth in this case right? and from that platform what more could you do in these other arenas and so there's not a one to one oppositional relationship between creating wealth and creating a possibility of you building a successful you know war chest or however you want to look at it, savings business, however you want to look at it and not doing anti-racism work. Like those things are not mutually exclusive. So you don't have to dissipate all your force and energy into anti-racism work out of some fealty to a principle of unification and healing. You can do both. You can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? That's number, that's sort of the first piece. We... Can easily do the opposite and sink into like our privilege and creating wealth and creating something powerful for ourselves without paying attention to or doing the, the healing work around anti-racism that we're capable of. That's another form of avoidance, right? So it's, it's always this thing. It's like this balance, just like the the polarities of yin yang, light and dark. It's always this kind of. It's a paradox. It's, it's both and yes and right. So how that ties into my current male leadership is pretty much just self evident in the way that I explained this situation to you. Like I've done a lot of training. I've been through several initiations, including the anti-racism work that enable me to be a facilitator. And in the sense that a leader is someone who creates and executes a plan, but a leader is also someone who is, when the leader's not present, they step into the most powerful place of moving towards that shared value system, towards that core you know, value system, and what the, the steps are to, to create the result. It's the outcomes that matter, right? So it's not that I'm a leader and you're a follower, that I'm not a follower, I'm I'm a leader. It's that... Leadership is an embodied singular piece in yourself. I'm choosing to step into the courageous difficulty and uncomfortableness of my life in whatever way that needs to be expressed. Right? Health, wealth, and relationships.
1: Okay. So, how do you balance being authentic and stepping into pain? and not being overwhelmed in that step?
0: I expect to be overwhelmed. One of the things that the stuff I've been doing in the last couple of years with the All-In CEO and the All-In Man program is this idea that we can actually handle more sensation than our mind thinks that we can. And that's both physical, emotional, and then Energetic, which is kind of an abstract concept. But so I don't expect to be overwhelmed by virtue of the fact that I expect to feel too much sensation. And every time I've approached that and moved through the threshold, I found out that I have more capacity than I think I do. So stepping into a, a challenging situation or receiving a challenging, you know, question or feedback about myself, I can have grace in that because I know that I'm capable of more than my mind thinks I'm capable of. Right. Even in, let's say I said something stupid on this interview, or I said something stupid to one of my teachers. I might really spend a lot of time and energy thinking about it after the fact and being hard on myself about it after the fact whereas now I just recognize that that's where the growth is like suddenly now I have more awareness more wisdom as a result of having made that error and now the question is do I have to make the error to gain the wisdom that's debatable and on some level living is hard right pain is how we learn to a large degree but it's not the only way, and that's the, the sort of the, what I see as the fallacy of the last 2,000 years of civilization, which is this modality that dominates Western culture that suffering and pain are the pathway to liberation. That's just masochistic. And it feels like, to me, based on what I've read, is that that's perpetrated on us by a group of people who want to continue to have a self-repress, because we only feel deserving if we go through the struggle. We only feel like it, it if we're if we aren't fighting, if we aren't in pain, or we aren't suffering, then we aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we aren't deserving of whatever bounty, or whatever wealth comes to us. And I don't think that's where God created for us. I don't think that's necessary. <coughs>
1: When like, I it's I unavoidable,
0: hear, right, but, but it's not necessary. When
1: I hear they, I have come for myself to a realization of there's a detachment. Like, it's not my problem because of them. And I even thought, you know, just like the whole sell the soda to the devil. It's like the devil made me do it. Like, it's not like my responsibility. There was this outside energy That is responsible for my oppression. And what I'm currently of the mindset of is taking full responsibility for my oppression. There is no other. There is no them. There is no devil. There is no I oppressed myself. And I see the danger of in of interacting with the people i want to interact with right now to help change our school system of vocalizing that statement in such a community would be apparently like bypassing and my white privilege like oh we're not oppressed well that's not what i meant um does seem like all of us individually we're going to land there. We're going to land like, oh, the shackles I've been feeling all along are the ones I forged.
0: I think the word some goes at the beginning of that sentence.
1: (laughs) Mark gave me some, but some others I made myself. I, that 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 dilutes the responsibility then. No, it doesn't. I, I don't
0: understand. You're still 100% that. radically responsible for your experience. And there are people who are oppressing you. Now, it's really weird to talk about oppression as a white male. So I just want to talk about my discomfort with that because it's sort of, um, it's very self-centering in a certain sort of way. Like we don't really know true oppression. And I think part of why you're making this intellectual argument is because the level of oppression you're experiencing is so low.
1: So maybe I want to turn up the heat of it. Why? Empathy.
0: Do you actually need to, to feel oppressed in order to feel empathy? I don't
1: know the answer
0: to that. Okay, I don't. <laughs> right? Because I'm aware of what the forces of, you know, industry are doing, that there are people and who want to control markets and control lifestyle and control the way, you know, people live their lives because it benefits them to do so. You know, just the way, let's take one thing since we're talking about education. All the textbooks, or the vast majority of the textbooks that are printed in the United States schools for public schools are printed in Texas. There's a whole process for how what gets put in those things gets decided. That is one of the key things that um, anti-racism work is trying to address, because there's this whole history that's not told about the way that... The formation of the United States was a genocide against indigenous populations and slavery. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants that to be told because it pushes them into a place of discomfort and awareness and they don't know what to do about it.
1: The other thing that you are well aware of, I saw this black woman speaking like we have black history month and it's all about slavery and slavery. There's nothing about our glory. And I think that's another aspect of healing racism is the voice of glory for people of color, to to learn about that as well as the horrible oppression and the amount of wealth and power that was generated from slavery.
0: So, yes, we need to celebrate BIPOC culture. We need to have the history be told of all of the innovation, like the first heart surgery was performed by a, a, a black heart surgeon, right? There's all sorts of elements of this that have come through our awareness now, and it needs to be taught at the grade school level, who, you know, who invented peanut butter, you know, all of the different things, mm-hmm. and that will start to heal the process as well, right?
1: So, in your work of leadership and masculinity, um, what do you personally regularly practice that is leaning into discomfort and pain? And is that a part of what you do as a part of your masculinity? embodiment?
0: Well, my personal practices is what I'm hearing is the sort of the foundational question there. Right. And, and then how does that support this idea of masculine leadership
1: and masculinity just generally
0: got it. So uh, my, my understanding is that masculinity and femininity are energies and that I have both and that I have a choice. I have agency about where I want to be, Emotionally, physically And, you know, intellectually In that framework And so for me There are times when Using what might be considered A thing that's feminine I.e. softness, empathy You know, consoling someone Is a form of masculine leadership Because I'm not stuck there I'm I'm applying a intention towards an outcome, right? And I and so being in the full spectrum of, of what it means to be a being in a body, not just fixating on masculine leadership, but as a uh, way that I've personally chosen to cultivate masculine leadership in my life more and more because of the there's a kind of father wound that I have in my life. And I don't want that to dominate my responses anymore in the way I react in certain situations. So I expand my ability to sense, have sensation. And so some of that sensation we could talk about is discomfort, right? What I noticed is that when I get beyond the mental barrier, when my mental toughness reaches a certain level, I don't, it's not suffering anymore. I have, I find joy in, the accomplishment or the perseverance or the engagement with the discipline. Right. So I live in Northern California. I'm, I have a pool. Hallelujah. I'm so blessed. (laughs) Right. And not only that, I have the money to buy the chemicals to keep that pool algae free and I don't heat it. So that gives me the opportunity from around middle of October through February to have a kind of cold plunge in my house now it's not an ice bath it's pretty close to it but it's cold <laughs> it changes those, my mental and physical state right mm-hmm. so when I first started doing that I had a lot of fear like oh my god I might have a heart attack what you know what's this gonna do to me is my girlfriend gonna find me in the pool when I come <laughs> home right or when she comes home like but over time I actually relish I, I relish the sensation which I used to fear or I used to have anxiety about, Now, I experience the memory of what happens when I do it. So I don't experience it as um, a challenge anymore. I experience it as a benefit. This September, I did a 21-day practice, which involved kind of dietary restrictions and physical challenges and those sorts of things. And what I got close to in that, which was new for me the first time in my life, is the enjoyment of being hungry. Right? Right. Instead of the sense of, oh, hunger means I'm going to like pass out or I'm going to feel bad or I'm going to, you know, something bad's going to happen. My emotional attachment to eating shifted through the practice of fasting. And I've reached a kind of equilibrium where I'm like, oh, I actually enjoy not eating the things and I'm not suffering about it. So part of it is what we think about, we bring about. And what we feel becomes real. So when you take that concept and you use your ability to be in your mind with your will and use your will to guide the thinking, then you can transform your experience, your whole experience first through that process of what the vision you hold for yourself. What are you committed to? What are the results you're committed to? Who do I have to become? To have those results. I have to become different. I have to have a thought process that doesn't relate to things like, Oh shit. But like, yeah. All
1: right. So one of the challenges I know you had physical things happen that it was no longer possible to complete the entire challenge. Right. Did you experience depression? depression and that immediate letting go of that challenge?
0: No, because I bre- I had breakthroughs up to that point. So the, the emotional dip or the depression that you're referring to is when we quit on ourselves. Right? But it's different when you push through the perceived limitations of your mind and you challenge your body physically, and you challenge your body, and you challenge your soul, and you challenge your, your mental framework. There's a point at which the body stops being able to lift the weight, right? After X amount of reps, the muscles tend to lock up and stop, and you can still do a few more reps. And if you take a few breaths, you reoxygenate, you can probably get one more even. Like there's a layer at which your will and your thinking becomes the method by which the physical body's limitations are overcome. And we talk about these as hero journeys in our culture, right? We, we, we love people like David Goggins and mountain climbers and how super athletes and all that stuff. So when I reached the level of actually breaking through the paradigm of my older self, of the the mental framework and the physical fatigue framework that I had as my, you know, what I thought were my limits, everything beyond that was a place of non-regret. If I failed, in this case, my Achilles heel, then It wasn't because I gave up on myself.
1: So you don't experience giving up on yourself now?
0: Well, I do in other arenas. You do. But I'm aware of it. And I know the difference between giving up on myself when I could have done better and having a mental framework that goes with. Oh, that's gonna hurt, or that's not gonna work, or I'm afraid of what will happen, or that I, you know, where you're basically deciding the outcome before the outcome, uh, the result occurs.
1: So, how do you manage the consciousness of giving up on yourself?
0: Well, I don't throw in the towel.
1: So, you're like, okay, I, I fell way, way short of what I wanted. You feel depression?
0: I don't feel depression about my own actions, usually, unless I do actually make some kind of misjudgment or I say something that I might regret, right? Um, the depression I feel is mostly when I witness something in my social sphere or in the greater social sphere that is a part of the human shempa, the human condition of unconsciousness right and I feel sadness but one of the things that I've cultivated for years is this in this book by Cho Trupa called the in Shambhala the sacred path of the warrior and what he talks about as a part of the warrior archetype in that book is this idea is that there's a certain point you can reach where the courage to come out of your safety zone where you're coming out of the cocoon as he calls it of, of myopia of just living in this kind of safe little space outside of that zone. There's all this freedom, but it doesn't feel like a victory lap or like, you know, a Rocky movie. It feels awakening feels like some sadness, there's this thing called the sacred heart of sadness, because once you understand and you have the vision to recognize the level of human suffering and the the way that our own mental frameworks are knocking us down and causing more suffering and causing us to help to, you know, basically oppress others or, you know, be a part and parcel to the oppression of others, then you can't put that back in the box, right? Some people try to do that with drugs or, or any way they can TV. Like some people try to put it back in the box because it's, it's hard to hold that. I learned about alchemy. I've been literally studying alchemy, you know, in different ways, not consciously aware that I was studying alchemy and then actually studying alchemy, which is a process of dissolution, um, chaos, and then reformation of, of a new substance. Right? So in the moment I alchemize my sadness Right? And I don't alchemize it by bypassing it. I alchemize it by going through it, experiencing it fully, allowing it to come in and then dissipate. And then there's a spot right after that. It's like if you guys have had a hard cry in your life, you know that at the end of that cry, there's this moment of stillness. There's this kind of like emptiness, right? Right. right? And then the next thing that happens might be more crying. You don't know. Right. But it also might be, okay, it's time to take a walk. Right. Well, There
1: is, in my experience, after a good cry, there's a refreshment that's felt right. Like, like no, now I'm in a place of empowerment to continue.
0: on. And the neurology of that is the body is releasing, you know, all these positive chemicals as a result of the detoxification, the releasing of the, the emotional content that's in the body that's around that. So, I don't view life as a fixed state. I view life as a a kind of ever unfolding moment, breath by breath. I'm alchemizing my experience and I'm using my intelligence and my will and my heart and my courage to actively engage that process. That's what agency means to me. That's what 100% radical responsibility means to me is that as I see, I then integrate through this process of allowing my emotions to be felt, recognizing the common humanity, and then choosing my response. And the practices I'm engaged in all are designed about creating the, the afterglow or the resonant practice beyond the moment of practice. So for instance, my Qigong and my meditation and my cold plunge in the morning, help me expand my capacity to feel sensation.
1: Did you do a cold plunge this morning?
0: No, because I slept in. That's the honesty of it, right? I don't lie. That's the other thing is I, you know, I don't bullshit, right? So, you know, I could tell you why I stayed in bed, um, but the point I'm making isn't about whether I did but, it this morning. So, Let me finish my point, please. Uh,
1: all right.
0: What you want to do is you want to try to create the possibility that. An hour from now, when your friend asks you whether you did your practice or not, you don't go into a kind of triggered space because you're you're still breath by breath you're alchemizing everything that's happening and you're in your agency, right? And when you're when you live in truth, when you live in integrity, when you live in an, a conscious intention to to be a force for good, you've got to practice, and you're not always going to succeed, right? But but you can build this openness and this ability to be in that space. And then, then your deeds become more and more f- fruitful.
1: Well, what I appreciate what you just shared is the moments like me asking, well, did you cold plunge this morning? And you yeah. say, no, the resonance of that truth is moved through quicker than if you're avoiding it and then I ask you and then you get upset like that's not what I'm talking about you know what I mean Yeah. so I definitely appreciate that there's an element of consciousness that allows one the truth of the moment with more ease and sometimes that ease is like oh this is a fucking uneasy moment
0: (laughs) right well and that's that's what you practice for So, back to this thing about the school board. Right. Your perspective as a parent informs a desire to want to do that.
1: What's, it's really coming, it's not as a parent. It's as a person. Like, here's this whole community in pain. And I'm a part of that community. And part of the pain is that people like me have just walked away for it for ever
0: right like you said the woman's been there since the 70s and she was like hey why hasn't this changed the 60s why hasn't this changed yeah that's why hasn't it changed Greg
1: because it's painful it's hard there's an element of the privileged white people of Marin County taking a breath and realizing that they have supported racism and remaining in the discomfort with that knowledge.
0: I'd say they're bypassing the discomfort.
1: Right, but I'm saying that's what's needed. is That they need to one, be conscious like, oh, I am a part of the problem.
0: Did you feel like anyone in that space that you were interacting with was in denial that there's a problem?
1: No, because they were all people of color I was listening to.
0: So you were at the school board meeting I and it was to, all people of color?
1: No, it's online. You can listen to it. So, yeah, October 24th. Uh, got it. The first 40 minutes is, a, well, the f- opening of the board meeting is for the public to speak.
0: Is this happening on Zoom or something? Yes. Okay. So the
1: recording's online. You can just go listen to it.
0: Right. So you're listening to this recording yeah. of BIPOC people. Speaking do, up sp- about this. Speaking about, up about the issues that are facing their community. No, about
1: this one particular event, event that is that then part of what they're speaking about is this event occurred because of our social norm and why is no one actively working to heal this social norm? The social norm being racism is alive and well in Wayne County.
0: Got it. And did you sense that the board was oblivious or um, detached or otherwise bypassing the idea that they bear responsibility for it?
1: Um my experience with governmental entities is they move slowly. So even though I know for sure one individual who's a leader on the board is very personally in wanting change and engaged. But my belief is that the government entity of the school board is like an oil rigger in the ocean and you say, make a left turn and (laughs) it was a very slow as an example, there's equity pages on all the high school websites and just attempting to get something changed on that page that's representative of this incident that is alive right now. Like you go to any of those pages, there's nothing that's changed since last year and The communication that's occurred is like, oh, it looks like right now, like around Thanksgiving is when a change will be able to be approved and go on the page.
0: So there's bureaucratic inertia in the institutional framework is what you're talking about. Right. Right. And that's fundamentally racist because the people that are in the seats making those decisions have no sense of what the real pain and urgency is for that.
1: And if they do... They, their hands are tied in some manner.
0: And part of what I'm... Well, that's what they say, right? But if it's your kid, suddenly well will step yeah. outside of those hands-are-tied kind mm-hmm. of moments, right? That's why I brought in the parenting thing, because I want to make a point about that. But I want to wait till you have completed your thought. Does this... Have you completed your
1: thought Well, the parenting thing... I think this is an empathy that has resonated... With me, like I remember, at eleven or twelve years old, when I read "Black Like Me," and I realized, wow, that's incredibly horrible.
0: Okay, so that's where the parenting empathy comes from for you. Got it.
1: Well, you th- so you're you're calling this feeling I have parenting empathy.
0: Well, Is that what my I did in that moment. Sure, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to confine it to that. I'm just I. Uh, well, there's a, thing I want, a point I want to make about parenting, which is part of why I brought it up about you earlier. So I'm, I just was pulling that in, calling that in. And what you said was, you remember being young and reading this thing, and your school board that you live in, in the community you live in, which is predominantly not people of color, which has potentially has sympathetic political statements that they make, but their actions are bogged down in the cultural inertia of bureaucratic changes in this a- era of safety and like non non triggering non canceling kinds of things and also but, liability uh, and lawyers and all of the things yeah. <laughs> that are sort of holding us back. All right, and this thing happened, right? What was the thing that happened?
1: So this video was made by students that's very racist. It's about 16 seconds of uh, this one individual saying the N-word over and over and over, and the other two individuals are laughing, laughing, laughing.
0: And, and it was made on school cameras? And so?
1: No, so it was made on the phone. It was made during the summer off school campus, but then it was thrown on social media and went around. And part of what is brought to consciousness, if one sits with this, is the individuals who made the video threw it out to the world because they knew there was an acceptance to it. It wasn't like, oh this is bad that I made, this is not gonna go well. It, 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 there was like, ah this is funny, let me throw it out there. So um, that's the consciousness that's alive right now.
0: So. The point I'm going to make is that it, it has nothing to do with the school board. That the, the root issue is about the parents of these children. And that the issue is that the shift actually happens in the way that you interact with your progeny. and the way that you act as a person when you raise your children. And that by... We're, we tend to have this sort of mentality of the kids... This responsibility of the school and you should be educating our kid. Wait, let me finish.
1: Very hard. for you I, to let I me know. You,
0: I know. Just stand by. Let me finish okay. my point. And that that's where the locus of most of our attention needs to be. Right. It's not that we don't want to put any attention there. I can count to five, two. <laughs> the parenting, <laughs> parenting is the ultimate locus of the impetus of this and the, the provision of the phone, the non observance of what's on the phone, the idea that the kid has access to publish something like that. And that the, first of all, that the kid who said the thing is not being held in enough of a loving embrace of parenting that he knows better or she knows better. And I think that's where, where attention goes. On this issue, it's right. and asking the school board to respond to this thing is a bit it's a, a high level expectation. Mm-hmm. We can do better with our education for sure. But having this issue become the school board's issue is the wrong approach. No, because that happened
1: on school grounds It affected the school environment. And there was a teacher at TAM that was physically injured because of trying to break up a fight that was happening around this video And so here's the other thing of it. Um, We have entities that we've created, we collectively have created, such as a school board, such as a mayor of a town. And in this particular instance, the school board is being asked to be accountable for change in the system that brings the education you're talking about to the people. And part of what I'm looking at is how do we bring consciousness to the parents through the school so that as a social whole we are all lifted in consciousness. and and that is where i think we have a great opportunity to be leaders in educational system changes that bring consciousness to our society like one thought i have is what if at the beginning of every single school sport that is a competitive you know we're there's like a minute of silence and recognition of racism and hatred being alive in this moment and very hurtful to individuals. And instead of calling out people, like I love the term calling in, you call people in to consciousness that were a part of it. And it's a reminder, like it could be a traditional reminder of like, oh yeah, it, it exists. And, and to me, it, it calls in what's happening in the Middle East right now and um, other aspects of the world. It's just a moment to recognize that racism and, and hatred is alive and acted out. In this moment, got it. And it reminds me of uh, the gentleman, and I'm forgetting his name at the moment. That was in the Olympics, and when he won the gold medal, he raised you know his fist. All the, uh, the three gentlemen who won the medals were on the podiums, and raised the fist, and it was a moment that brought consciousness to the world. And so. What if that is incorporated into our system on a regular basis instead of a reaction to an incident? We have actions of consciousness that are just permeating and continually practiced.
0: One of the struggles that's currently occurring in our culture is this idea of how we teach history. Yes. And that's, that's waged, being waged in the sphere of the educational institutions, right?
1: right. absolutely. And that's,
0: yeah. that's an ongoing thing. Yeah. And people are hardening their positions in some conservative. Are. And some, some people are. are opening up to the idea of, like, we really need to mm-hmm. understand this, right? Mm-hmm. And I agree that one of the ways that we address systemic racism and cultural conditioning around privilege and, and racism and ableism and you know, the different things that are, are part of the conversation is that we use institutional approaches to educate and that raises the next generation up. Right. 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 For sure. You yeah. need to be doing that. Yeah. Right. And I'm, the parents absolutely need to be more involved With what their kids are up to And what their consciousness is And that when we outsource that To the educational system We're making a mistake
1: Well I wouldn't separate the two But you know Like I really It's more healing To consider our institutions As a part of us That we are a part of them Like we're not It's not the institution here And then I'm here and as you well know, um, consciousness takes an amount of time and energy that we've been blessed to have in our life. Um, I know that there's a lot of people in our society that are. Working 14 hour days, 16 hour days. And part of the challenge of us human beings is how do we call in in a supportive manner? And like you've, you know, you and I had a conversation once where you felt like there's times where I just dig into you, like where you're already feeling vulnerable. And I'll say something, that's you know like slamming it even further, and it hurts. It's not a. And, and what I appreciate in that conversation we had is you came up with a way to bring that to my consciousness because part of what I shared with you is I'm not conscious of it.
0: Right.
1: Seems like that.
0: <laughs> Can you tie that into what we're talking about a little better? It Seems abstract to me at this. Point.
1: Um. In that conversation you and I had, there was a calling in. You called me in to consciousness, and you were also responsible for what we were co-creating. We co-created a way to communicate that lifted us both up. I wasn't the bad guy in the situation. I was an active part of the situation and you were an active part of the situation. So part of our healing experience and train of thought is um, how do we call people into the community to lift up. And I've heard this, and I forget the woman's name, that the phrase calling in is, she really speaks about it. And she talked about in her particular situation, like a Thanksgiving dinner with her family, and one of the uncles started going off. And whereas before calling out and getting angry, and then you create drama, and there's no healing in that. She was like, hmm. You know, I know you are really loving, kind guy. Like I've known you for X amount of years and that's who I know you to be. And what is this that you're saying right now?
0: Well, in order for people to be able to do that, they have to heal their inner trauma because in order to have the bandwidth, to have the capacity, to have the ability to move through the trigger, to alchemize just the anger at the person's ignorance being expressed. Or our perceived ignorance, because ultimately it's their opinion, right? Who are we to judge on some level? Like that we can, right? We can be discerning about what is harmful and what isn't, but is to have the capacity to meet them outside of the nature of making them wrong. Right. Right. And that's what calling in is. It's restoration of integrity, right? It's the idea that this person is not necessarily outside the subset of me. Right, like, this is a little esoteric, but in oneness theory, which I subscribe to, you're just another aspect of this this whole. And so if it's occurring in you, I can choose to relate to it from a place of judgment, condemnation, abhorrence, and hate. Or I can alchemize all of that And find the hurt part of you and recognize the humanity in it and seek to touch that, which might open your heart, no guarantee, right? But it might open you up to then receiving some additional peace, right? But if the communication that originates from me in response to your angry tirade is that I'm going to fix you by installing this new belief, by getting you into called in space and getting you receptive. And then I'm going to go, well, here's the thing you need to know. I'm just doing the same thing you are, right? But it's It's got a soft piece to it. So there's this element of, and this is in the ACIM book, which is we are all on the healing journey. It's happening. It will take whatever amount of time it takes. And it's irrelevant. The time factor of it. But the idea that I need to tell you how you should be, or what you should think, is the same thing as you telling me the angry thing that you are telling me. But it's hard to recognize that until you've got a certain amount of years under you. It's hard to, uh, you know, to, to relax that part of me that feels so... In, that there's so much urgency about changing your mind for you. right? Now, that doesn't mean that it's not an important thing to try to do, right? But we have to recognize that the, the individualized experience, the karma of our own biographies, is the lens through which the teacher, the creator, the, you know the universe, whatever you want to call it, works. And sometimes we're the agent of that change, the reflection of that in our responses to people. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes you can't there's no technique to get through to someone and actually get them to consciousness. Right? There's you can do quiet acceptance, you can do lovingly calling them in, and sometimes you fucking smack them and it still doesn't work. Right?
1: Well I don't like fucking smacking isn't
0: a good idea, right? Well sometimes it works. That's what
1: yes you think there 's a, a situation where smacking someone isn 't the right
0: yes hmm. now that 's the thing about right action
1: hmm hmm
0: is that it 's not a there 's not a narrow set of when that 's right now we could choose the most notable version of smacking someone in the face which is the, the thing that happened to the Academy Awards with will Smith and um, Chris Rock.
1: Chris Rock, yeah.
0: And that I tend to agree is not an, a moment when smacking someone in the face is a good idea. And I would be hard pressed to come up with one that I could think of. I couldn't, don't think I could describe a scenario, but I know that there may be a moment in my life where that's the thing that's called for. <laughs> and I'm open to it.
1: I don't think there ever is. And here's why. Cause if we take humanity, like an individual, you're there and I'm there and I'm here and And then we create entities. These entities are political structures and religious structures. And then I need to protect my entity. And I feel like you're attacking my entity. And so now, instead of me smacking you in the face, I'm throwing a bomb into a space where I believe this entity
0: exists. So if a woman is inappropriately touched in a club we've seen them pour a drink on a man right or we've seen in older cultures where she slaps him
1: mm-hmm. or knocks the fucker out right yeah I'm, I'm with you on that now there is an element where that person like and that is part of the um, the the uh, Reasoning that's going on with war like well they threw the bomb first and after you know ten bombs are thrown at us we're like fuck it we're throwing a bomb back and that's where it does seem and I want to respect your time so I'm checking the time well we gotta wrap up pretty soon um, <laughs> um, there is an I do have a sense of urgency, of healing, because this throwing bombs thing and smacking people, it's just creating pain.
0: So this brings us to what I wanted to talk about today.
1: (laughs) Well, you got two minutes. (laughs) Glad I could be here for you.
0: Because the transformation doesn't happen because of what I do, necessarily. Which sort of undermines my slap theory. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Life is paradox. The transformation occurs within. And I think we can ask the question, why does beauty exist? What's its purpose? We could arguably say it's not that the beauty doesn't exist, but because we have this ability to feel what beauty feels like when we encounter it as beings, we can sort of see that there's, that it does exist as an experience. And when beauty manifests within your experience, there's an emotion that goes that, with that. And it's close to this idea of recognizing divinity. We see the master at work in the creation. And we feel that sense of exaltation. We feel connected to the master work. As if we are all right as we are. And so beauty teaches us what life can be like. And the more we cultivate that inner sense of it, and then we cultivate our actions as an, a, an evocation of being beauty. Our consciousness and our actions start to harmonize with the creation at a level that then pushes out anger, fear, war, because when you connect to the fact that you're beautiful and that the creation is beautiful, then there's less desire to destroy it. There's less desire and fear. To have something more, to create some kind of dissonance within it, and so there's no simple answer where I do something or we do something and we eliminate hatred in the world, right? That there's no like panacea. There's no like you can't legislate love. No, just, but and can, you can't you can't punish people for hating and create less hate.
1: But can you create? Can you? Know only love within yourself.
0: If you didn't know anything other than love, you wouldn't know love. Because there'd be no polarity there.
1: Can you live a life without polarity?
0: Well, you probably can, but we're not doing it. I believe that it can happen, but we aren't living that way now. That's not what earthly existence is for. It's not. We're not here for that we're actually here to grapple with the paradoxes of it all.
1: Right. So wait, you wanted to talk about beauty. Yeah. That
0: was, yeah. And why beauty exists. And I, I knew it would come (laughs) right. And the cultivation of beauty, recognizing your beauty. Now I don't see you for the things that I'm afraid of, or that I want to stamp out in the world. Right. Like if I look at, um, Someone who flies the stars and bars in the South, and what I see is my anger about the history of slavery, then that eclipses all this other possibility within the connection there. So the calling in is the removal of the need for judgment, the removal of the need, Hi puppy. The removal of the need to be in that state of resistance, anger, struggle, fight, correcting them. And recognizing that their karma has them in a place of ignorance. In a place where they don't see the beauty yet fully. And I have a choice about whether I I interact with that. And on some level, teaching people to see the beauty of the world is the most manifest way to disintegrate the toxicity in the world. But shaming them about their toxicity doesn't help.
1: Do you think that um, disharmony and discordance is important in musical structure to create tension and then the joy of release, and that's partly how beauty can be seen?
0: Contrasts, polarity, sure, absolutely. It's part of the environment. Now, relativism, relativity changes the observer's relationship to what quote beauty is. Right. So we don't have a unified beauty theory. Um, what happens when we do that is we narrow people down and we put them in boxes and we collapse the world of possibilities into a place where it's not everybody fits. Right. But seeing the beauty in the variety, seeing the beauty in the differentiation, not the norm there's a whole lot more freedom and there's a whole lot more joy in that. It's, you know, and there's so many things we can talk about in beauty, like human beauty. We have these norms about weight and sizes and, and, you know, how you wear your hair, whether you're of a certain um, type of lineage, right? Um, There's particular practices by cultures that don't want to have children result from outside of the genetic framework that their culture is mostly built on. Right. And then there's cultures where variety is the spice of life and people don't care about that stuff. And, and the promise in, in, uh, in what the imagination of what America is, is this idea of that place. And this is embodied in a Prince album called The Rainbow Children, which is this idea is once we free ourselves from the constructs of hatred and the myopathy of differentiation and judgment, There's a freedom that shows up where we all get to be beautiful, right? But when we start to make conditions on what's beautiful, we start, we all start to lose connection, right? But like the context right now is that there's um, a war going on and it's commonly referred to in the media, you know, it's November 1st, 2023, and the Israelis are fighting Hamas and there's all kinds of things going on there, including uh, genocide and, you know, depopulation, all those sorts of things. So what's the beauty in that?
1: I think we should end right there. I know you do. Well,
0: the beauty will be when it ends. We'll feel it. We'll feel relief. We'll feel gratitude. We'll feel like you. God, the human beings stopped doing that. And that that's not saying it's a good thing, right?
1: No, but I do feel like there's an element, like even coming back to our school, like there's elements I know with you personally and you know me personally that we've called are not beautiful in our life. We want them different. And, and the human joy of celebration is when it is different. Yeah. And I do feel, like you said earlier, that ultimately that's an inner change. We only have a little bit of lifetime left to make that change.
0: Well, that's the thing that the ACIM tells you isn't true. That's, that's the fallacy. Yes, that is correct. Right? Yes, but that yes. the problem with that mentality is it, it's like you can turn that into a blank check for passivity. Right. That's exactly. not leadership. Passivity is not leadership. So there's this paradox of how do I apply urgency to this intensity and at the same time be in the recognition that if I fail, it's not going to... I'd let me ask you, yeah.
1: with the current situation in the war in the Middle East, Yeah. how are you holding that so that it has authenticity for you and you can hold it?
0: I can hold it?
1: Right. So you're not pushing it away. Because I know... I've talked with people who are like, just I'm not paying attention to it. I think I'm probably more in that realm in the sense like I'm not paying attention to daily news about it. But I'm not hiding my head about it either. Mm. So.
0: I guess the way I hold it is by understanding the parts of myself that want to kill
1: so would you be willing to, do we have enough time even? so, it's I'm going like, to
0: make time because this is important. I might end up on this call under my car that okay. I have to go to. But right. I think this we finally reached a point where we need to follow through on this. And it's in my value system to finish something like this. So, again, personal responsibility, recognizing where I want to kill Hamas or where I want to destroy Israel because of what they might my judgments are about them once I start to understand that that's in me now I'm holding it in a way that's about me I'm looking at my my you know desire to to say I stand with Israel right which is not a hard thing to say for me and then I also can understand and feel the thing of you know what Palestine has been wronged since 1947. And there's been a perpetuation of a kind of prison state by Israel, right? And those two things seem to be in complete opposition to each other, but they're not. (laughs) What's at the root? The root is in the Declaration of Human Rights. We're all human beings. We all want to feel safe. We want our kids to go to certain schools, right? Where we get in trouble is where... Entities of corporations or governments want to exert dominance and control over resources for profit in order to have and take something, right? And that taking, that appetite, it's a human condition too, right? right. And we're not justifying it, it's definitely costing us all amazing amounts of resources and suffering. Right, So do I pick a side? There are people who tell me if I don't pick a side, I'm wrong. And if I don't pick a side, um, then I'm wrong. And if I pick a side, then everybody on the other side, I'm wrong. So I'm totally willing to be wrong in this. Because it isn't right or wrong. Isn't, <clears throat>
1: let me ask you a different Is it painful for you to feel and experience the energy in you that wants to kill?
0: Hmm. I don't think it's painful until after.
1: After you have that experience.
0: Well, either in the moment, I'm recognizing that the energy's there, and I'm not. That's not painful. It's instinctive. It's you know we can talk about what that is physiologically. Mm -hmm. But externally, it's after the fact that I recognize how there might there's wrong action there, right? Um,
1: like you made an action from that energy that was wrong action.
0: Well, honestly, this is where privilege comes in, right? Like I don't have to kill anything. And the most obvious place that I encounter the urge to kill is when I'm, you know, sitting in my meditation garden and there's flies and bugs that are trying to right. And I went on this initiation recently and as part of the leadership team, one of the things we were doing, we were outside from like noon to late in the day and it was just fly after fly after fly, like tons of them. And at first I was like very agitated and I was trying to brush them off. Right. I was trying not to like kill them. Right. And then over time, I allowed myself to just experience what it was like to have them land on my ear or land on my nose or try to crawl in my nose, right? And the thoughts that came to me are those old pictures of the kids in Africa that we see where that's like, they're just not even flinching because there's nothing you can do about it. It's just happening and it's the resistance that's causing me the suffering, right? And it took me about 24 hours to get to that space. And then um, I was stable and I didn't feel like killing the flies anymore. That's about as much desire I have to kill anything right now in my life. And that's an incredible amount of privilege, right? So if I lived in Israel, right, on on October 7th, my desire to kill might have gone way up, right? Same thing if I'd lived in Palestine, if for generations and seen my relatives imprisoned and wrongfully tortured or whatever. See that, but it's part of the nature of being in a human body. It's part of what we face as people. And so we have to lean into being human and alchemize everything in the moment, right? There might be a time where my desire to kill someone or something would be right action, just like the slap we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. We often exalt that in our, our fables of bravery and courage and warriorship, right? And every time it happens, it's not one or the other. It's both good and evil at the same time. And so depending on the, the circumstances and the values that you have, we, we talk about those as a social commons as, well, there's killing that's going to be evil that you get in jail for, right? And then there's killing that we actually you know, train you for and pay you for and give you retirement and, and a housing loan for, right? right. That's
1: <clears throat> and both. then we learn that there's even killing that, yeah, you were hired, paid, and trained for, but it really wasn't...
0: Well, it wasn't righteous. wasn't righteous. wasn't right.
1: looked upon by the right. world as a good... What a, two things occurred to me. One, the conversation we recently had with actually our episode that went live Monday, um, where we were talking about no, it wasn't, it was the previous one about forgiveness. And, you know, we talked about murder, and I was saying, well, you can forgive that. Like, you, you can, you could see that as that moment that was a mistake but that isn't the individual as a whole through the whole span of their life, which is a very difficult thing from what I'm hearing from people. Just as like one can think like, well, the flies, you just like, you know, just sit with it. Like it took 24 hours, but that's what it took. That's what it, that experience took 24 hours to come to a For me. Right, right. Maybe it's not, not so noble hard.
0: that that was what I did, though. by the way. This is just my experience.
1: No, but it, the, the nobility is your willingness to have that be the goal. Like, you weren't going to try to change your environment. You weren't going to try to kill every fly
0: in the, the vicinity. Oh, but I, every time one of my partners walked through the space, the door where I was staying, I said, make sure you shut the door.
1: <laughs> yeah, for the first 24 hours.
0: No, after, after that, that, it was the whole time. Like, uh, make sure you shut the door. Right. I don't quite know where this is going. We we kind of do have to land the plane at this yes. point. And I just want to bring it back to mm. what great questions you ask. Your willingness to take me and our viewership to places that are uncomfortable so that we might uncover some gem, some aspect of the human condition that brings us into greater understanding and wisdom. I think that's beautiful. Thank
1: you. I don't think I'm doing anything you're, we're just walking a lot of paths together. Right. <laughs> well, brother,
0: love you too. Make art not war.